This program was first broadcast on Canterbury's access media station, Plains FM, and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. Welcome to Earthwise, environment and peace with justice interviews on Plains FM 96.9. Welcome to Earthwise. I'm Lois Griffiths. Martin and I feel very honored and privileged to interview once again Dr. Ramsey Barut, Palestinian-American journalist and author, editor of the website Palestine Chronicle. His articles have appeared in many newspapers worldwide, and he himself has spoken in many countries, including New Zealand. Welcome to Earthwise, Ramsey Baroud. Oh, well, thank you for having me. Well, Ramsey, Lois mentioned Palestine Chronicle. Well, that's a website that we turn to for news from Israel and the occupied territories. Recently, here in New Zealand, activists have been reminding Kiwis of their opposition to South African apartheid. One would have thought that the report from Amnesty International accusing Israel of being an apartheid regime would have led to thoughtful discussions. Yet this story has been pretty much quietly buried. What about in the U.S.? Oh, unfortunately, it's the same story here. Um, True, the uh, Amnesty International report um, was was crucial, at least uh, to build an intellectual foundation among many liberals um, within the U.S. intelligentsia that they can start now openly talking about the Israeli apartheid. But as you can expect, um, the the kind of power and influence uh, Israel has over not just the American media, corporate mainstream media, but over the very conversation uh, on, on Palestine and Israel is, is so profound and so rooted and so historic that even an amnesty report by itself is not going to change and reverse that um, you know, the, the, that system that has been in place for so many years. Um, so, yes, it, it was very, very important, but it will take a while for the conversation to finally become mainstream in America. Yes, I'm really surprised at that, because I'm sure it has a wide following worldwide. And they weren't yeah, the first group to say, make this accusation. There have been some human rights groups within Israel itself that have spoken out, haven't there? It's interesting, and, and it indicates that there has been there must have been prior coordinations between B'Tselem last year, Human Rights Watch a couple of months later, and Amnesty International's reports. Um, this cannot possibly have been um, just a random process that just happened by chance that these three major international human rights organizations, B'Tselem being the largest in Israel, Human Rights and Amnesty being into, you know, the largest worldwide, you know, just happened that they kind of decided not only to brand Israel as an apartheid state, but even the nature of that branding, the nature of the way they defined Israeli apartheid. I mean, Amnesty International, for example, is not defining apartheid as what's happening in the West Bank alone, or Jerusalem alone, or Gaza alone. They are talking about the entirety of of the historic borders, or the borders of historic Palestine, and even beyond. They are arguing that Palestinians like myself who live in diaspora and are not allowed 
to go back home, also like myself and millions of Palestinians, because of their ethnicity, because of their race, because of their religion, because of the fact that they are Palestinians, is also an extension to that Israeli apartheid. So what Amnesty has done here is that they have expanded the paradigm, or, or rather the borders of that definition, to include issues that, that we did not even anticipate uh, that Amnesty, at, at, not at this early stage, would bring it up and would include it to be part of that definition of what apartheid and what Israeli apartheid essentially is. So we could call it an anti-apartheid struggle. Now, Palestine Chronicle has very recently had an article called The Next Step in Palestine's Anti-Apartheid Struggle is the Most Difficult. Its leadership's the problem, isn't it? It's a big, big problem. And, and we have to face up to this problem. And I think in some strange way, Amnesty is, and Amnesty and others, of course, are placing us in that very, very difficult position where we have to we have to move forward. If we are to move forward with defining our struggle as an anti-apartheid struggle, and this is what I think is actually happening worldwide, uh, Palestinians, Palestinian organizations, regardless of where they are, regardless of, of, of their ideology, regardless of their geography, it seems that that term, apartheid, is the one that is finally clicking and is bringing all Palestinians together. Now, if that is the case, and indeed it is, how do we move forward in an anti-apartheid struggle that requires everyday grassroots mobilization happening in every neighborhood, every street corner, every city, every town, every village, in the West Bank, in Gaza, in Jerusalem, and in, in, in historic Palestine, today's Israel. How do we do so when we have tens of thousands of so-called Palestinian Authority security forces that are coordinating their action with Israel, blocking every road, you know, protecting every settlement. How do we coexist? Can we pretend, and, and that's really the, the essence of my article in the Palestine Chronicle, can we pretend that the Palestinian Authority simply doesn't exist and operate independently from that existence? I don't think we can, because the Palestinian Authority does not exist in a vacuum and that does not exist in isolation. The Palestinian Authority is in the way. They are part and parcel of what's happening in the West Bank. And they are benefiting greatly. We're talking about billions of dollars of international aid coming to the Palestinian Authority with the assumption that the PA will remain committed to Israel's security. How can Palestinians win their freedom and proceed with this anti-apartheid struggle that is currently in its budding and early stages while the Palestinian Authority exists at least in its core current form and, and serves as this shield that's protecting or at least separating between the Palestinians and the Israeli army and the Israeli settlers. Well, I think your article also mentioned, made the point, and it is a good positive point, that young Palestinians are aware that the PA is the problem, not the solution. Uh, indeed, they are the problem. They have been the problem for such a long time. But somehow they managed to persist despite the fact that they were a problem. And there are reasons that will take a long time of, of discussion to, to demonstrate why the Palestinians did not make that realization early on in the process. I think they did, but 
the 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 shock, the sense of collective shock that was brought um, uh, about with the Palestinian Authority formation, the oppression of any Palestinian dissidents, the imprisonment of thousands of Palestinians, the killing of Palestinians in, on a daily basis, early on in the process, it kind of really pushed Palestinians, uh, Palestinian people into a corner. Now, there is a new generation, and this generation has transcended the, that that cater of the PLO and the Palestinian Authority, that that generation, they don't use their language, they don't make their, they, they don't relate to their historical references. They operate based on a new political and intellectual paradigm. But we shouldn't get too excited about this because there is a problem here, and that is the Palestinian Authority is the largest employer in the West Bank. Mm. which means that even young people are hostage to this socioeconomic, corrupt socioeconomic paradigm that has been enforced by the Palestinian Authority for all of these years, since 1994 until today. They cannot pretend that they can exist without it. So there are all sorts of questions that really needs to be answered, and this is why the, the, the article argues that perhaps this is the most important and critical moment in the history or, or, or in this process of declaring this anti-apartheid struggle is we have to understand that it is not so simple. And this is a mistake that I made in the past myself, frankly, uh, which is simply saying the Palestinian Authority simply needs to be wiped out, simply needs to go. But what do you do with this massive network of a socioeconomic infrastructure that has been put in place, which created a great deal of dependency that where the Palestinian people cannot survive economically without it, where you have an entire educational system, you have an entire employment system, you have an, even the NGOs, thousands of them throughout Palestine are verified and certified by the Palestinian Authority. So even the Palestinian dissidents who are operating within the NGO system actually have to get the stamp of approval from the Palestinian Authority. So we know two things now. Number one, the Palestinian Authority cannot be a vehicle of liberation and cannot possibly help the Palestinians in apartheid. The other fact is the Palestinian Authority is very, very entrenched in the socioeconomic and even cultural let alone political body of the Palestinian people. So that's where, where this generation needs to figure out a way out of this equation or this, this dichotomy that has really is pushing us to the point of paralysis. It has to be resolved. Otherwise, even with Amnesty International and even if the United Nations itself certifies Israel as an apartheid state, it's not going to make fundamental difference if the Palestinians persist in this state of political paralysis. So it seems to me that the young Palestinians, they need to know who they can turn to for guidance and inspiration. And a book is about to be released by you and Elin Pape, Our Vision for Liberation, Engaged Palestinian Leaders and Intellectuals Speak Out. What would liberation be? Exactly. This is really where we have attempted to kind of um, assign responsibility. It will be this young generation that is going to redefine the new era. True. But then you also have a, an, an incredible generation of Palestinian intellectuals, 
activists, academics, poets, artists, filmmakers, uh, um, who are who have struggled and paid a heavy price. Some of us are in diaspora. Some of us are, you know, exiled. Some of us are in prison. Some of us, and these people have this tremendous experience, and this experience has to be shared. So the main target audience, actually, in our book, are young people, young Palestinians, but also young solidarity activists around the world who are hoping to become part of that global international pressure on Israel that would eventually force it to relent and to dismantle its apartheid regime in Palestine. It's 30 people who are really but a microcosm of a much a higher number of Palestinian intellectuals who operate outside the confines of the so-called the current Palestinian leadership, who are who have achieved so much in their fields of, um, for example, you have Farah Nabulsi, uh, an Oscar-nominated filmmaker. You have, um, the, you know, the likes of Ilan Papi, who have spent many years of his life mobilizing and creating uh, uh, and, and fashioning an international solidarity. Movements. You have the likes of Rada Karmi, uh, a Palestinian academic living in the UK who has been part and parcel of the Palestinian struggle at the at, at academic and intellectual levels throughout the years and for decades. You have 30 of such people coming all the way from Palestine to Chile to Australia, Samah Sabahawi, for example, to Canada, to uh, throughout in, in Africa, in Asia, in Turkey and all over the world, agreeing that we might not agree on everything, but we are agreeing that there is a need to change course. And we are, are, we are in need to entrust this experience to a new generation. Um, so these 30 people, everyone is dedicating uh, his essay or her essay to a specific subject on liberation. Liberation in archaeology and science. Liberation in film and theater, liberation in music, liberation in politics, in diplomacy and so forth. Um, we are actually, and this is not because it's our book, but there is no such book available anywhere in the world, in any language. And for, you know, since the beginning of the Palestine discourse, that actually is dedicating to this specific issue. We are really hoping it's going to make a, a, a massive contribution to the discussion on Palestine and become a, a, a foundation of a new conversation that is liberated from the confines of the past. You're listening to Earthwise Broadcasting in Christchurch on Plains FM 96.9, in Hamilton on Free FM and in Waikanae on Coast Access Radio. Today's guest is Dr. Ramsey Baroud of the website Palestine Chronicle, and we're discussing a new book out soon, Our Vision for Liberation, Engaged Palestinian Leaders and Intellectuals Speak Out. Ramsey, some of the problems that they're faced with is really the need to keep memories and historic memories, need to keep this knowledge alive, isn't it, and to keep hope alive. Right. I mean, hope has to be alive. As long as there are people fighting for it, hope is there. As long as we are still on the ground, as long as there's, you know, we are standing, you know, maybe the Israelis can place checkpoints and they do hundreds of them. But there are Palestinians who are standing on the other 
outside of the checkpoint insisting to cross back to their homes, to their schools, to their jobs. As long as, 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 long as Palestinians are standing and fighting, there is hope. At every level, there is hope. I know at times it, it may look despairing, but it's just the nature of history. This is the kind of historical trajectory that was and has to be taken by any nation that is fighting for its freedom and liberation. This is as true to Palestine as has been true in the history of numerous other nations, especially in the southern uh, hemisphere uh, and the global south throughout the years and throughout the 20th century. We are continuing the journey of these nations that they have started many, many years ago. So our struggle is really part and parcel of a global struggle that has been fought by so many countries, so many nations, so many minorities, so many indigenous people all over the world. And and as long as we are fighting, there is hope for us. But there is also hope for the world. Because if Palestinians who are fighting against numerous odds and numerous superpowers are actually able to prevail and to obtain their freedom, then freedom, equality, justice, and hope is possible for so many other people who might not be fighting against the kind of odds that we are fighting against. So supporting Palestine and supporting the Palestinian people is almost like supporting humanity in a sense supporting ourselves, supporting our own smaller, maybe isolated fights everywhere around the world. It's a global struggle par excellence. I've been looking through the names and I'm, I've been impressed by the high level of education. Of course. And I'm impressed how many women, including women of very high education, take part in the book. One of them, I was reminded me of you, actually. She has the same background, doesn't she? That's Glada Agil. I hope I pronounced that correctly. That's right. Professor Glada Agil from the University of Alberta in Canada. She she, uh, is a descendant from a family that comes from the Beit Daras, village of Beit Daras, which is my uh, ancestral village back in historic Palestine. It was destroyed in 1948, and it was affiliated with what they call the Beit Daras massacre. Over 200 people from the, that village were massacred by the Israeli Haganah uh, as they were trying to escape the, um, the, the invasion of their village in May 1948. Um, Rada, you know, was born in Gaza. I was born in Gaza. She acquired her education. She got her PhD from the University of Exeter. I got my PhD from the University of Exeter. I think one is copying the other. I'm not sure who. But I, I may suggest that I am the one who is copying her. But Rada is one of these, and, and it's really interesting you mentioned the, the issue of uh, the number of women contributors to the book. Uh, one thing that we were really trying to avoid is we were trying to avoid political correctness, meaning <laughs> that we wanted to select people in that book who are truly uh, true representatives of their areas and their fields of study. And, and and then just examine the evidence. You know, how many people do we have from Gaza, West Bank, Christians, Muslims, men, women? But the the way that things worked out, it was just absolutely perfect allocation. I think there are more women than actually than than men in the book, and that and that was not at all planned. This just happened. It just because they were the most deserving of representing and expressing and articulating these specific subjects that they have discussed. 
also the number of Palestinian Christians. And some of them, I actually did not even realize that they were Christians until, you know, you know, we 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 worked on the book and they submitted their essays because for us it wasn't really a crucial subject. We were not trying to pay lip service to tolerance and that sort of thing. But you ended up with this fantastic number of Palestinian Christians coming from Gaza, the West Bank, and elsewhere. One of the most inspiring of the of the uh, essays is written by Anwar Malouf, the former head of the Palestinian uh, uh, community in Chile. Uh, mm-hmm. This is a community that dates back over a hundred years ago. In fact, they just celebrated the hundredth year anniversary of the establishment of their football club, the uh, uh, Portivo Palestinos, which is one of the top football clubs in, in the entire country of Chile. And they are all dissidents, I mean, the descendants rather, of Palestinian Christians. Uh, they were established by a community of three people called, each one of them called George. So they were called the Three Georges. And the Three Georges, a hundred years ago, have decided that we must not forget Palestine. So they established a football club so that their children and their children's children can always chant Palestine, Palestine every time they watch that football club. And it was an absolutely genius idea because they are some of the most dedicated Palestinian community in diaspora. Half a million of them, if not even more, lives in Chile, mostly in Santiago, but elsewhere. And they are still very, very committed to Palestine. That particular chapter, we are using it as a model of success. What, how does solidarity work beyond lip service? How does solidarity work beyond chants and slogans? Can solidarity be an actual practical platform of providing real help and standing uh, in a tangible way with the Palestinian people? It was a particularly uh, positive chapter. In fact, really pretty much all of them are meant to provide hope and leave the reader on a positive note. There's so many fantastic people, stories that could be told. I was particularly struck because I was unaware of um, the Muhabitat women who are trying to protect the mosque, the Alaska mosque. And we've had this awful news in last May, was it? Well, last summer, the attacks on the mosque. These are women. They are protecting the mosque, and they get arrested. That's right. And, and, and the reason we, we don't speak about these women um, enough is because, and, and, and I'm being painfully honest here, because they are women who wear hijab, and they are religious Muslim women who, um, put, you know, who display their solidarity with Al-Aqsa based on religious grounds. So sometimes I think we are a little bit overbearing and overprotective in the way we celebrate you know, what type of popular resistance we think is suitable from a Western point of view and what is not. And as a result, um, we, you know, I, I've been following Hanadi Halawani, the head of the Murabitat, for years on social media, and I know she does incredible work, and, and she is a true leader, and she's a true fighter. And the way she expresses that solidarity, whether through, through religion, through teachings, through, through education, through food, for example, and what she has to endure on a daily basis. And so many times she was humiliated, stripped, searched, and imprisoned and tried in court and banned, not only banned from Al-Aqsa Mosque, banned from Jerusalem altogether. So 
that was really quite an interesting experience for us because we wanted to kind of investigate this phenomenon even more. You know, by not isolating these women, supposedly because they do not fit this perfect perception that we have of what should, you know, popular resisting women should look like and what may or may not satisfy Western media sensibilities. And what we landed on here is a story of power and courage. And it's really this power and courage that is allowing the that is first of all it's the true expression of the, the the power and courage of the palestinians of jerusalem be it muslims or christians but also kind of seeing women for years taking on that leadership position uh in organizing and mobilizing at grassroots level mobilizing their communities in order for them to ultimately pray at al-aqsa and to ensure that the extremist uh, uh, Israeli settlers who are constantly invading Al-Aqsa are being, you know, being confronted. That's what they do. They stand in their in, in their faces and they confront them, and they they get so much physical punishment as a result of this daily confrontation. That's a story that needed to be recorded, and Hanadi Halawani's voice truly needed to be communicated with to a generation of Palestinian women who may uh, share so much of, of her background, her beliefs, and her spirituality. And speaking of different backgrounds, I was impressed that Father Manuel Busalama, at the worst time, was told Christians to go out and support, support the protecting the mosque. So there's this. The one, it seems to be one that, of the, one right. of the and, uh, sorry, one of the weapons of, yes, of, of oppression is to divide and rule, and they're not being able to divide and rule, are they? That's right, and 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 we shouldn't allow them to divide us into sects and religions and so forth and stage different fights. Uh, you know, for for you know different groups of people, and uh, Emmanuel Muslim is is the perfect case in in point. This is a a Christian Palestinian man who is rooted in Arab culture. I mean, when, you know, he wrote in Arabic, we translated his writing, the way he speaks, the beauty of his classical Arabic, the pride he has in being a Palestinian, an Arab and a Christian. For him, there is no contradiction here. You know, this claim that Christians are caught in the middle, as if this is a fight between Jews and Muslims and poor Christians are caught in the middle. They are the heart of Palestinian society. Before Islam arrived to Palestine, they were all Christian. And and so so this is this is the people you know, Muslim is an expression and a representation of a people that is rooted in history and is extremely proud of that history. Um, his knowledge was absolutely uh, astounding, really. I mean, the, the kind of references he makes, the kind of knowledge he has in, in, in the Bible and, mm. and in liberation theology in particular um, was, was really quite astounding. And, and his position on Gaza, I mean, he is one of the most beloved uh, characters uh, in Gaza. At one point, he went to the streets uh, with um, during the Gaza war with an old rifle, an old Turkish rifle, symbolically saying that the Christians are here and they will fight um, with their Muslim brothers and or brethren. And I said, um, I, I said, uh, Abuna, meaning father, father Muslim, 
um, did did you really have any any bullets in that gun? And he said, of course not. It's an ancient gun from a hundred years ago. But it was a symbolic gesture that here we are ready to join that fight and we are all the same. I'm, I'm, I'm embarrassed to have to interrupt because I think interrupting is always a rude thing to do. But we've run out of time. Um, thank you so much for talking to you. Remind listeners of the book. It's called Our Vision for Liberation, Engaged Palestinian Leaders and Intellectuals Speak Out. Most the most amazing people, most amazing um, set of humans, of humanity, what, what the possibility for, the, for humanity. And we're looking forward to reading the book ourselves. We want to get into our library. Thank as you. Well. Our Vision for Liberation. Thank you very much, and thank you for taking the time to talk to me. Okay. Goodbye. Bye. Martin, it's wonderful talking to Ramsey Barut about the book, which we must all read, get into our libraries, Our Vision for Liberation, Engaged Palestinian Leaders and Intellectuals Speak Out. <laughs> <laughs>